The following Agio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome back to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Grace, and I'm a pediatric hematologist and clinical researcher at the Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer and Blood Disorder Center. I'm also an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Today is a conversation between returning guests, Jill Welly and Tamara Shriver. You'll remember them from past episodes of this program. We know the way in which individuals are affected by pyruvate kinase deficiency varies and that no two people are the same in terms of symptoms or specific medical issues. In addition to differences between individuals, for any one person, there are different symptoms and issues that arise at different ages. For example, a 10-year-old may feel well with a given hemoglobin and participate in full activities, whereas that same individual with that same hemoglobin might feel quite different at age 50 and be unable to accomplish what they want, including a full-time job or exercise or socializing with family and friends. It's incredibly important for people affected by PK deficiency and their clinical providers to be aware of these age-specific issues. Today's podcast is focused on the aging process in PK deficiency. And now, please enjoy this conversation with Jill and Tamara. I think what's important for the public to understand is that it is sort of an invisible disability. So even though some people might see people with PK deficiency that have jaundice eyes or jaundice skin, for the most part, our bodies are complete and whole. And so if we're doing our physical day-to-day things and we tell you that we have PKD, you might think, oh, that's not a big deal. And in reality, we really struggle with fatigue and just doing the daily functions of life. And you might have no second thoughts about it, but we are really struggling with getting things done, doing multiple activities, you know, being a mom, being a person that works, being a person that has several roles. It's really difficult. Probably at best I can do one thing at a time, but not multiple things at a time. I concur. It is invisible. I just know growing up, just saying the word which at that time was very hard to pronounce, I don't think even my mother could even pronounce it today, is that I looked fine on the outside. And everybody's like, well, Jill, you're just fine. I don't, I don't get it. But to deal with the fatigue, the brain fog, and trying to keep up. You know, we looked okay on the outside besides jaundice, but knowing what was going on internally, and we can talk further about this, but understanding the scope of the disease I think growing up was very minimized. And as I get more educated, as I got older, but it really has had more of an impact than I really thought. Yeah, and I would agree. I think when I was younger, my family simply understood it as just having anemia and fatigue. So that's really how it was handled, was just being tired. So if we could manage my sleep and you know manage my tiredness, everything else was okay. So how did that show up from a psychosocial perspective? I felt like I wanted to do the same things that everybody in my family did. I wanted to have the same success that my dad did. I wanted to do all the physical activities that my brother, I was comparing myself to my family members and to classmates and to people that I saw around me. And I thought that I should be able to do whatever they did. And that was my marker for success as a young person. 
in reality, I couldn't keep up, but I faulted myself for it as opposed to really understanding that I needed to maybe accomplish those things in a longer, like maybe have a, a longer calendar for it. And then the second thing, understanding that success wasn't really about accomplishments, but more about who I was as opposed to what I do. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, patients, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. And so for Jill, from a psychosocial perspective, what did that mean for you? Quite a bit from the fact that, like Tamara, I was always comparing myself. Now I grew up with a twin. So I was always trying to keep up with her and trying to fit into her social cycle because I was the odd girl out. I couldn't keep up. I was labeled as the sick one in the family. And how do you then fit in? So I became, I kind of hung on her shirt tails and ran in her social circles, especially as a young girl into my early teens. And then I call it kind of an emancipation. I kind of broke away from that, fallen and defined and figured out my own self and what I needed. But the same thing, I wanted to keep up. And as I look back on my life, the last 61 years and what I was doing with my life and my decisions and my career, I overachieved because of it. I wanted to prove everybody wrong. And I remember I was one of the three, my three other sisters. I was the only one that left the small rural area, moved to the metro area and went to college. And when my parents were dropping me off at college, they made a comment like, um, well, Jill, we kind of thought you'd hang out and, you know, marry the, you know, a local guy that would take care of you. Mm. And, you know, we basically, they raised me to be dependent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that my family, and I'm not faulting my family at all. I think that they raised me to rely on them and they were doing the right thing in their mind. And I was trying to establish my way on my own to say that I can do it without you. Uh, certainly, this is not a big problem. I mean, I'm not saying woe is me, but I did cause a lot of heartache and headache for myself because I just attacked life full on and did everything that maybe biologically was at the extreme end of difficult. And I had a lot of headaches, I mean, intense, tense migraines and a lot of, I think, psychological issues. I had eating disorders up until my 20s. Just a lot of, I would say, extreme behaviors, dangerous behaviors um, that lasted into my 20s. And, um, and it was really about establishing my own identity and proving myself as worthy because of people wanting to take care of me. 
When you look back, what do you think are some unmet needs for the PKG community? And what are some things that you may have needed then or things that you think that may be needed now? It's an interesting question because there were no resources when I grew up. There was nothing. We were told, at least my parents were told by the doctors, that there will be no research on this. Nobody's going to pay attention to this. This is so rare. There will be no medications for it, no cure. And so we muddled along without any information. And as I became a young adult, trying to find proper care has been a challenge from the time I turned 20 till up until I'm 60. And I just found recently somebody that I feel comfortable with to get proper care. And I think that was a resource that was missing for my parents, obviously, but certainly for me the last couple decades up to this last year. So I think finding the right doctor that you can talk to that understands it and doesn't put me in the room for five minutes, looks at some vitals and says, see ya. I really think having somebody that's sitting on your side that can really relate and can be empathetic about it and really understand it. More from just a medical side, but really looking at the bigger picture. And I'm just entering into that world right now with a new doctor. I would agree with everything that Jill said. And then I would just add, it would have been super helpful to have had guidelines of care for us back in our day. And those weren't existent. And then also just to be able to have a network of people just to check in and say, hey, is this normal? Is that normal? It's just like that wasn't existent, whereas now it is. I think for me, being more aware makes me want to do better with it and really get the right care because I really was, in my opinion, I'm going to call ignored or mistreated for so long. And just recently, I connected dots to osteoporosis as a part of PKD. I was not told that when I got osteoporosis. I was very symptomatic in my teen years that it was related to having a splenectomy and having the gallstones removed. None of that was discussed as being related to PKD back in the mid-70s, mm-hmm. right? So having that awareness and having the information, I'm seeking better care, especially as I age. When you age, you get tired anyway, but this just, I'm being more aware of, well, okay, how do I really feel? And I'm starting to log this. I'm paying attention. I was talking to Tamara about this on the way here, that I have this little burst of energy for like 24 hours, and then I crash the next day. I'm on this roller coaster of energy levels. And as I get older, how do I sustain that? How do I manage it to live the last chapter of my life with the best quality of life I could have? And that's what's really concerning for me. There's really no roadmap. I don't know a lot of people older than me that have the disease and what it looks like for them. So I want to be really mindful for myself and my care and my treatment and how that feels for me and communicate it to the generations behind me. I would also add for me, I have the benefit of having sibling and my parents and I can compare sort of the symptoms that I'm having, like I'm having arthritis. I already had a pacemaker, you know, when I was like 48, which is awfully early to have a pacemaker. I've had several bone issues. I started with atrial fib when I was like 32 and arthritis, which I actively manage. A lot of these things, if I compare myself to my parents, I'm doing what they did, but only 15 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So the, the genetic counterpart, I would say my observation is PKD, you age faster. 
And I think that it might be because of iron oxidation. And so my thing is that I'm like reading everything I can get about iron oxidation and sort of pursuing that in research and pursuing that with like every doctor I see, what do you think about iron oxidation? What do you think about it? So like that's sort of my way of finding out more about do people with PKD actually age faster? Because I think it's a thing. You know, interesting you said that, Tamara, because newer doctor I just saw once on that first visit, what really hung with me, he said, Jill, you look fine on the outside. This is part of that invisible mm-hmm. thing we were talking about. But he said, you are prematurely aging on the inside, which really rung a bell with me. I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I doing with my life? What's my perspective? Where do I want my life to be? And how am I going to now take this information and do something different about it? Yeah, I mean, it makes me feel like I need to do legacy building. And that's really where my thought is about the stage of life that I'm at. And that's a great point to transition. What what do you want to see 10 to 20 years for the PK deficiency community, from their care, from the support that's provided, from the connections that are created? What do you envision? I envision that the PKD community is connected internationally. So based on the conference that we had, we had people from Australia and Malta and Ireland and Great Britain and the Netherlands and the U.S. And we had people online from Spain. And I think with the internet and with the extreme interest in PKD, we can be connected and we can be a global community for PKD. And I think we can do it with reasonably within two to five years. And so that we can rely on each other for first of all, connections, but secondly, for international guidelines, I mean, at least guidelines within the U.S., but then guidelines that can be used in European and other communities, and then guidelines throughout the U.S. that are sensitive to accessibility and to different cultural practices. That, to me, is a realistic goal where we can be within the next five years. And the next 15 years, we can have an organization that's the size of Cooley's or is the size of some of these larger organizations. And that we're not a what disease, but oh yeah, I know about pyruvate kinase. So those are some of the goals that I feel like we can do in addition to taking care of each other. Great. Yeah. And to add to that, for me, because of my struggles finding proper care is awareness and education to the clinical community. That's been the biggest struggle is finding the proper care and talking to a doctor that just hasn't Oh, yeah, I read that in a textbook, but knows then how to treat it and how to talk about it. And like Tamara said, the guidelines and has that accessible information. Well, thank you, Jill and Tamara. I share your dreams and hopes for the future for Pyruvicanus deficiency community. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to share those with us. Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of Pyruvicanus Deficiency. Don't forget to hit that follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community. And if you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see what resources there are to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is no, K-N-O-W-P-K-deficiency.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Rachel Grace, and we look forward to talking with you again.